turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 18 to 25 this morning. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. You know, one of the things that I've learned at my house is not to leave the door cracked open. If at our house, if you leave the door cracked open, it is an open invitation for our furry little friend Pedro to come busting in the door. So if you want him inside, don't leave the exterior door open. The other day I, I walked outside and left the garage door kind of cracked open and I was doing something and all of a sudden I see a black streak right by me. It's like, oh man. So I had to go get Pedro. So if we want Pedro to stay where he needs to stay, we keep the door all the way closed, right? To protect Pedro, to, to keep him where he needs to be. Well, when it comes to our responsibility to guard sound doctrine, the same is true. We must be sure to not leave the door cracked open or false doctrine will come crashing in. Heresy comes crashing into the church. And so we have a responsibility as believers to keep the door closed, to guard sound doctrine, to guard the teachings of Scripture, to know what they are, to defend them, to stand upon them. We hear that. I want you just to hear our responsibility that as we start this morning before we get into Matthew. But we read early on in the, in the New Testament church in Acts 2.42 that as people came to, to the Lord, there was a certain thing about what they were doing. It says they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They didn't devote themselves to the teachings of the culture. They didn't devote themselves to what was trendy. They didn't devote themselves to the philosophies of the Greeks. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the truth of God's Word. That was that to which they were devoted. In Romans 16, 17, you may remember we spent a Sunday on this. See, Paul wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Paul is very clear to watch out for those who would bring divisions that are due to false doctrine. And he says to avoid them. Have nothing to do with those who would be teaching false doctrine. In Titus 1.9, we read Paul instructing Titus that the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So that, why? Why is it important that, that me and, and Mike and Ricky and Matt hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught? It's so that, Paul says, he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we have a responsibility as pastors that if something is taught contrary to Scripture, that we confront that, that we rebuke that, that we guard against it, that we teach sound doctrine here at Grace. In Titus 2.1, Paul says, as for you, teach what accords to sound doctrine. In 1 Timothy 4.16, he instructs Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch. Know what's being taught. Make sure that what you teach is in accordance to the truth of God's word, that you're not teaching something that is deluded, something that is off, that is a false gospel, another gospel. Teach sound doctrine. And then in Jude 3, we read, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about 
our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Now, what faith should he contend for? Just this generic faith? This faith that he defines? No, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith of the scriptures, the faith that was passed down from God, revealed by God through the word of God and through his son. We are to contend for the faith, battle for the faith, guard sound doctrine, uphold sound doctrine, defend sound doctrine, rebuke false doctrine, guard against false doctrine. So today, the reason we start there is because we come to an area of biblical doctrine that we have to be careful to guard or we will find ourselves quickly in the realm of heresy. The doctrine that we come to is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It's it's a doctrine that that we will see that if we do not hold fast, if we do not keep the door closed, it will swing wide the door to many areas of false doctrine. As we look at this, as we get into Matthew, I would just say briefly to the graduates that we honored today, do not be fooled into thinking little of doctrine. Do not be fooled into thinking little of the truth of God's word. Contrary to what many will say, God's word actually has an original meaning, an original truth that we cling to and that we understand and we look and then we see how it applies to our lives. We do not fit the Bible into our lives. The Bible is the authority over our lives. It is our authority. It is the word of God. And I don't pick and choose what I want to believe because it makes me feel good or because it doesn't line up with my desires or what I want. I submit my life to the truth of God's word. Don't be fooled into thinking little of sound doctrine, graduates. Think deeply upon it. Look for churches. As you go to a new place to live for semesters, look for a church that teaches sound doctrine. Look for groups, campus ministries that teach and proclaim sound doctrine that will encourage you to grow in your faith and in your understanding of God's word. Let's read Matthew 1, 18 to 25 this morning. The word of the Lord says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, what I want us to do this morning is we're just going to walk through this text and and look at a a few key points, a a few key things that we need to understand 
And then I want to give you three reasons or three areas of sound doctrine that we have to learn and maintain about the importance of the virgin birth. Next week, we'll look at the name of Jesus and, and the significance of, of, of who he is, who he's said to be. So we'll be back in this passage. But this week, I just want us to briefly focus on the virgin birth and its significance doctrinally for us as followers of Christ. First, in, in one eighteen, we see the relationship between Mary and Joseph. We understand that it says here that they were betrothed. This means that they were legally pledged to be married. This, this often would last up to a year. It was a, a contract signed between families. It was very serious. We see the significance of this in that in verse 19, what is, what is Joseph's action? Is it just to leave, just go, well, I'm breaking up with you? What is, his, what is his response? What is he planning to do? He's planning to divorce her quietly. So the significance of this shows that the commitment of betrothal is very, very committed. It is very uh, serious. It isn't something that's a dating relationship. But we also see that while they were betrothed, there was purity. It says before they came together. They, they had not had any physical relations. Now if, you, if you remember, you can flip over there if you want to. If you remember, Pastor Ricky read in Luke 1 of the, the birth of Christ foretold to Mary. This is the other account. We have two accounts in the New Testament of Christ's birth being revealed by the angel. And the two accounts are harmonious. They, they go together in, in perfect harmony. They are different in that one tells the revelation of the angel to David, I mean uh, to Joseph, and the other tells the revelation of the angel to Mary. Luke's account is the angel speaking to Mary. Matthew's account is the angel speaking to Joseph. But when we think about the fact that they had not come together in Luke one thirty four, we see this is why she, she's bewildered. She's confused. When the angel comes and tells her what is happening, that she is with child, she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Mary's confused. How, how, how can this be? This doesn't make sense. How can this be possible? It, it, it can't be. She's bewildered. It's because they had not come together. They had not had any physical relations. And so we look to the text and we see the testimony of Scripture gives us confidence that the relationship was pure. There's nothing in the text, either Matthew and Luke or Luke, that would tell us otherwise. Furthermore, you, you look at the, the life of Christ and you see that his own life testifies the fact that he was different, that he was holy, that he was of supernatural birth. He was no ordinary man. Verse 18, we also see the source of the conception. The source of the conception is what? Verse, verse 18 says it's from where? From the Holy Spirit. We see that repeated again in verse 20. From the Holy Spirit. The, the from there just indicates to us the source or the cause of the conception. It is not from the seed of man. The Holy Spirit was the source, the cause of conception. Now, we understand this is not like Greek mythology or some other mythology in which a God comes down and has relations with a woman to birth a child. This is not that. This is not something where there is a, a physical relationship that occurs between a God and a human to create Jesus. No, this is a time in which there, we might be better off to say or, or well to say a virgin conception as well as a, not just a virgin birth. There is a virgin conception that is from the Holy 
Spirit. Mary became pregnant because of the supernatural work of a miracle-working God, the one by whom all things were created according to Colossians 1.16, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and who, according to John 1, 1, is eternally existent as the divine word who was God and was with God, came as a baby and was born by Mary. We understand that here, that the conception was a supernatural work of God. It was a virgin conception. Verse 22 to 23 we see that it was the fulfillment of prophecy. Look at 22. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. We, we just meditated on Isaiah 7, 14, and he quotes it here. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you remember last week I told you that, that Matthew is writing to what type of audience primarily? Do you remember? Jews. Primarily a Jewish audience, right? And so as he writes to them, one of the things that he is going to show over and over and over again is that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. So he's constantly bringing back to say he's the promised Messiah. And here's where we see him fulfilling scriptures. And so right away he says this is to fulfill the scripture that the prophet Isaiah spoke. That behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is that moment. This is that time. God's plan is unfolding, Matthew's saying. We saw his plan unfold before our very eyes. A plan that was long foretold. A plan that now is, is amazing. It had to be amazing for them to, to behold and to see. As it, as it unfolds, the, the amazement has to just be incredible. It has to be incredible for Mary and Joseph to see this working. I mean, could you, could you imagine for a moment? Could you imagine? You, you have the account of Matthew. Matthew says, hey, I'm, I'm going to tell about how the angel revealed this to Joseph. And, and Luke's writing, and he said, I, I, I'm going to tell how the angel revealed this to Mary. And could you imagine the, the moment that, that Mary and Joseph, they have to have conversations, and they're talking, and they're talking about this, and going, I... We've had no physical relations, but, but I am bearing a child, and the angel revealed to me that he is going to be the Messiah. Yeah, he did to me too. And then all of a sudden they know, and they think back to Isaiah seven fourteen, And they're thinking, wait a minute. The prophet hundreds of years ago said that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name is going to be called Emmanuel. God with us. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> what, what do you do in that moment? If you're Mary and Joseph, what do you do? Other than worship. Other than behold the supernatural work of a mighty God. That's why I think it's something we should obviously... Uh, we, we would do well to look at verse 24. What does Joseph do after the angel speaks to him? Well, let me, let me just think about that for a while. I'll think, I'll consider doing that. What does he do? It says that when he woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth 
to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, a little important side note, I think that word until is an important word when you think about the whole idea that some would say that Mary remained a virgin. She did not, it says, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a child. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. You see that from the text here. But what do we see that Joseph does? He obeys. I mean, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. What's going on through your mind? What, what's, what's running through your ideas? What, what are you thinking about, thinking about, that, that what you're told? Well, Joseph just gets up and he does as the Lord commanded him. He proceeds in obedient faith, even when it's difficult. And the question that I ask when I think about this is why? Why, why did Joseph do that? Why, why did he obey in such a difficult moment? Why did he obey what we just, we just sang of, the, the scandal of a virgin birth? I mean, we recognize that this isn't something that Joseph said, okay, I obey, and Mary said, yep, uh, do as you would do unto me, Lord, I am your servant. They go out, and everybody goes, oh, yeah, good job, guys. It's probably not what happened. They probably were the subject of great scandal, great rumors, great gossip, great unbelief, but they obeyed. Why would they do that? Why would Joseph obey? As, as a matter of fact, why would all of the early Christian martyrs stand their ground on the truth of God's word? Why would they not bow down and confess that Caesar is Lord, even though they died for it? Why would they willingly be burned at the stake? Was it because it matched their cultural moment? Was it because it made them feel good? Why would they obey? Why would they do that? Why would John G. Patton, a missionary that several of you in here read about, why would he obey God's call on his life to advance the gospel to a place filled with cannibals? Why would he be willing to go? Why would he continue to go after the loss of his wife and child? Why would he do that? Why, why, would, why would the believers in sub-Saharan Africa, in China, in Colombia, in North Korea, why would they refuse to stop gathering for worship even though their lives depend on it right now? Why would they do that? Why would they still come together? Why would they come together in the secrecy of night to study the Word? Why would they long for a Bible and to possess a Bible knowing that if they're caught with a Bible, it could mean certain death? Why? Why? It's because they are convinced of who God is. Joseph knew who God was. Joseph knew that God is faithful, sovereign, gracious, good, and glorious, and that he trusted God's plan. Joseph knew God. Joseph knew that he was just a part of God's greater story. The believers across the world today are not living as if the whole world revolves around them. They're not living as though everything functions for their good, their ease, their contentment, their comfort. They're functioning and living life in a way for God's glory, understanding that they are a part of God's greater story, that they serve a God who is great and mighty and faithful and worthy of their very lives. John G. Patton is convinced that God is a great and a glorious God and that, that there is no salvation for men outside of Christ. And so he's willing to go and to obey Christ and to take Christ if it means his very life. The early Christian martyrs are the same. They knew the truth of the gospel. They knew the truth of the resurrected king. That Jesus lives and he reigns and he saves. 
and they're willing to die for that. The answer to why they would do that, why Joseph would obey in such a difficult day, is because he knew who God was, and he knew that he served an awesome and a mighty God. So Joseph's faith does not lead us to be like Joseph. We go, hey, let's be like Joseph. No, Joseph's faith, faith leads us to exalt our God. It leads us to say, why would Joseph do that? It's because of how great and awesome and mighty God is, and I serve that same God, and I know that God is always faithful. He's always to be trusted, and he's always to be obeyed, and I will do that. Praise God. Let me give you three areas or three reasons that the virgin birth is significant, the the doctrinal significance of the virgin birth. Three reasons we need to keep the door closed so to speak now these three are tied together they they build off of each other we need to see that they're they're linked and they're important in keeping and maintaining sound doctrine the first is this the virgin birth is foundational for the nature of jesus foundational for the nature of jesus he was conceived from the holy spirit so he's divine He was born by Mary. He was human. So he was fully God. He was fully man. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, Paul makes a beautiful statement. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see what Paul does? He is sending His son, God sent forth his son. He is divine. He is fully God. But he was born of a woman. He was a man. He was human. He was fully God, fully man, fully displayed in the virgin birth. Now, if you sit around and think and go, well, was that the only way God could have done it? Could God have done it another way? Well, I, I suppose there are other ways that God might have sent his Savior. He could have done. He could have chosen differently, I suppose. I don't know. What I do know for sure is that this is the way that God did do it. I do know that God did reveal through Isaiah, he did reveal in Luke, he did reveal in Matthew that this is the way he did it. And it gives us the clearest picture that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was not half God, half man. He was fully God and fully man. The virgin conception, the virgin birth gives us the clearest picture of that testimony. It helps us to understand the nature of Jesus. The God-man. The second, second reason we have to keep the door closed, the second reason that we have to guard the doctrine of the virgin birth is that it is foundational for the sinlessness of Christ. It's foundational for the sinlessness of Christ. In, in Romans 5.12, we, we read this, that therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all Sin. We, we understand the, the teaching there that, that we are born sinful. We, we don't become sinful. We don't become sinful when we sin. It's not like we're born sinless until that moment of our first sin. No, we are born in sin and we sin because we're sinners. It's who we are. We're born sinners. We inherit sin from our federal head or our representative, Adam. 
we inherit sin. However, the problem with that is this. When we think about the Messiah and we think about the one who would be worthy to pay the price of sin, that we, we think, okay, we understand that, but, but the sacrifice has to be unblemished, has to be holy. So how could it be? How could it be a sinful man would not be worthy of the sacrifice for the sins of man? Sin can't pay for sin. It doesn't work that way. The sacrifice has to be unblemished. It has to be unstained by sin. But again, that's why Luke 1 is informative. If we flip back over to Luke 1, we read this. When the angel speaks to Mary, he says in uh, verse 35, he says, right after she says, how can this be? I'm still a virgin. And he says in verse 35, the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, shadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Do you hear what he said? She says, how can this be? How, how can this work? And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit. Therefore, Therefore, because it's a work of God, because the Holy Spirit, because your virgin conception is from the Holy Spirit, therefore, the child to be born will be called what? Holy. He's holy. He's sinless. He's perfect. He is the divine Son of God. We need to understand that, that Jesus is not born with a sinful nature. The work of the Holy Spirit upon Mary enabled Jesus to be born sinless, the sinless Son of God and the Son of Man. Listen, this is important here. He was not born sinless because Mary was sinless. That's not right. If, if you thought that, if you followed after, and listen, that is Roman Catholic theology. If you go there, then what's your problem? Your problem is just one step away. Well, were Mary's parents then sinless? How does that work? It doesn't make sense. It, Jesus is not sinless because Mary was sinless. No, he's sinless because the Holy Spirit came upon him. He was born holy because of the work of God in the virgin conception. Without the virgin conception birth, Jesus would be sinful. He is fully God, fully man, and he is sinless. He is the holy son of God. The first two reasons is important. Third reason. The third reason of doctrinal significance is it is foundational for Jesus' work of redemption. It's foundational for Jesus' work of redemption. Think, think back. Some of you, some of you know your, your kind of Bible history, right? You understand that the Bible is, is, we've talked about it being this one great story, this great narrative of God's work among his people. It's work redemption. Think back. When's the first glimmer of gospel hope? When do we first get a glimmer that God's going to redeem? Genesis 3.15, that's right. Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, right after the rebellion, rebellion of Adam and Eve, when, when God comes and confronts them and, and speaks the punishment upon them, he gives them hope. And that hope is what? That this, from the seed of the woman, right? From the seed of the woman will come the one who will crush the head of Satan. That's the first glimpse of gospel hope. We see that, that the Messiah, for all the way from the beginning, has to come from the seed of the woman. It had to come from there. But it couldn't be wrought from sinful man. We understand that too. 
Oh, but when you have the God-man, the one who is fully God and fully man, the one who is the holy son of God and the, and the son of man, when you have that, then he is able to work redemption. He's able to be the one that Peter describes in 1 Peter 1.19, the lamb without blemish or spot. The lamb without blemish, blemish or spot who saves our souls. Listen, if you deny the virgin birth, then, then, then you're saying that Jesus is just a sinful man like you and like me. And if that's the case, he cannot secure salvation. He can't. It would be the same as me trying to die for your souls. And that's not going to work. Why? Because I am a sinful man. Christ alone is sinless. He is the worthy, unblemished, unstained Lamb of God. He is the one that was such that when he comes on the scene and he walks up, John the Baptist says what? Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Behold. He is the Lamb of God. So we see that the miracle of redemption on the cross was because of the miracle of the virgin birth in the cradle. We understand that. That it, is, it hinges on the fact that Christ is fully God and fully man. Listen, we have to guard the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ. We don't think lightly of that. It is significant and it is meaningful and we must guard sound doctrine. And so just as a final takeaway, here's what I want to give you and leave you with, is that we serve an extraordinary God who works in extraordinary ways in and through ordinary people. Do you hear that? We serve an extraordinary God who works in extraordinary ways. Ordinary people, just like you and me. God is not confined to the ordinary. He is not confined to the natural. The God we serve is the God of the supernatural. And so I would contend to you today, if you're sitting there and you find the virgin birth to be offensive or unbelievable, then you need to just back right up. And you need to deal with that first before you even try to venture down the road of Christianity. Because we do not serve a God made by human hands. We do not serve a God limited to our ability and our comprehension because we fashioned him out of wood or stone. We do not serve a God unable to do supernatural miracles. We don't serve a God that's confined. We don't serve a God that fits into this nice, neat little box. That's not who we serve. If that's who you want to serve, then you need to go elsewhere. Because we serve the God of the Bible. We serve the God who is not made by human hands. We serve the God who is divine, who does supernatural miracles, who does work in supernatural ways. We serve the God who did create all things by the power of his spoken word. We serve the God who parted the Red Sea. We serve the God who rose Lazarus from the dead. We serve the God who made the sun stand still. We serve the God who caused the walls of Jericho to crumble. We serve the God who gives sight to the blind. We serve the God who made the lame walk. 
We serve the God who was born of a virgin and who is able to miraculously save your souls. He is able to save my soul. He is able to bring life to my dead heart. And praise God, he has all glory to his name. We serve the God who works in supernatural ways. We serve the God who died on the cross for his people and he rose from the grave three days later. If you are looking for a God who only works in natural ways, who is confined to natural understanding and the ways that we can fit into our brain, then it is not Jesus. Jesus is the God of the supernatural who does great and mighty things beyond comprehension that leaves us amazed, that leaves us in awe, and leaves us just wanting to know him and worship him and exalt him because in him and through him all things are possible. That is the God we serve. And the virgin birth declares that is like the first neon sign in the New Testament saying, flash, 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 this is the God you serve. Uh, The God that you saw throughout the Old Testament is here. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, and he is here to save your souls. That's the God we serve. It's the God we worship today. But today, we do not only remember the supernatural work of Christ on the cross. I mean, on, in the grave. Or, golly, I'm all over the place. I'll get there sometime, right? It's back on back. We don't serve just the God that supernaturally worked in the virgin birth. We serve the God who supernaturally worked to save our souls on the cross. We remember the one who came, was born of the virgin, so that he might save the souls of men. We're going to take a moment to close our time together and observe the Lord's Supper. Our deacons are going to come down and make preparations for the Lord's Supper. You know, when we come to this moment, we come to remember that Jesus, fully God, fully man, who was born of a virgin, who was holy without sin, who lived a holy life without sin, went to the cross and died on the cross for our sin, in our place. And he was buried, and three days later, he rose miraculously. He came miraculously and he rose miraculously and so in this moment we remember what he did if you're here visiting and you're not a member of grace i would invite you to partake of the lord's supper we don't hold this to be grace baptist table it's the lord's table lord's supper if you are a follower of jesus christ and have placed your faith in him, repented, turned from your sins, and we invite you to partake of this time. As our deacons prepare, I would invite you to spend some time in prayer and reflection on the work of Christ on the cross. Let's pray together.